Welcome to episode 14 of Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons. Hey. What's up, man? It's been a long time. It's been too long. I thought you left left the country. I know. He's got deep-seated resentments against me. He's got got like... You ghosted me. It's like fear of abandonment. You should see the text he sent me about you. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I had to delete them all. He ghosted me. And Mr. Peter Crable. Hey. Hey, Mr. Crabes. How are you? Great. Great. Welcome back, everybody. It's been a while since we've recorded. We're glad to be back. We have a great show for you today. You can find us at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter. And Mr. Crabes, we have a sweet redesigned website, don't we? In process, yeah. Okay. I think we're supposed to roll it out all at the same time. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's not quite ready yet? I'm not sure. Yeah, a lot of it's ready. Yeah. You go look at it, sure. Okay. It good. looks good. Okay, I think good. it looks good. <laughs> it looks great. Yeah. New logo. New logo, new, new digs, new color scheme, a little less dark and foreboding. Right. Do you have mm-hmm. some lime in there? There's some lime. Yep. There's in some the lime. coconut. There's some pink. Very good. Yep. Uh, I saw when when you when you send out information um, on Gmail, Mr. Siddons always includes comments. Lots of comments. Lots of feedback. I'm into comments. I like the comments. I know he's the king of he's the king of comments. He I think he said his main comment about the new website was that the. The mobile version was was just true. I was don't, poor I, looking. I don't understand, but you know, is that going to get better? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Good. So, listeners, Mr. Crabes will give us the heads up <laughs> when the website is ready to go. Mr. Mr. Sids, uh, can our audience find us anywhere else on Facebook? Facebook? Fosbook. Fosbook. Until they shut it down before the 2020 election. All right. <laughs> is that where we're headed? No. Oh, okay. It'll just ruin our democracy slowly. <laughs> I get a fair number of notifications on Facebook that Do you? people are viewing or liking the Ed's Not Dead page. Oh, yeah. Yeah. that's good. Don't you get those? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't get them for anything else, so yeah. No, it's cool. Um, anyway, we got a great show tonight. Uh, we are going to be talking about... Content versus thinking skills, an age-old argument. As old as time memorial. Has has come again. (laughs) I'm going to be interested to see where Mr. Crable falls down on this since he typically says that curriculum is not the answer and doesn't matter, uh, right? That's right. Uh, so Coming yeah, full circle. So there's 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 new thinking about it, and it's not, it seems like the educational pendulum is swinging back the other way, away from Common Core towards content. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, we are also very lucky to have author Richard Rothstein on the show. Yes. Uh, he's going to be talking about his book, The Color of Law, which I have sitting in front of me, which Casey, um, in his spare time, has lots of those little... <laughs> Various. Remember we discovered last time that's his casual reading style. Yeah, I mean this is heavy stuff, and yeah. he's got it's yeah. all annotated. Yeah, were you were you were you? <sighs> did you have the content knowledge to read this book, or did you use your thinking skills? I had to Google a lot of words. You did. Okay, so your background knowledge and your vocabulary was limited. <laughs> is that right? We're going to talk about that. Yeah, it's okay. ter- I almost exclusively exclusively read on a Kindle now. Yeah, mm. and the word search stuff is so good. The holding down on the word and the sure. definition is amazing. Okay, it's I, great. I don't have and any- I'm not going to lie. Some, I've, I've been reading a couple paper books recently. Yeah, and I just want to like, oh, I miss you so much. <laughs> push, pushing the page. I miss you. Immediate gratification. <laughs> do dictionary. You, do you read books on your iPhone? You use no, I, iBooks no, at all? I like never. iBooks on my I phone. Just, the phone is. Oh, uh, it kills my eyes. I can yeah, totally just, do the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Something about it, it, I don't know. I don't like it. I haven't read many books this year. No. I need to, I'm kind of looking forward to summer. Yeah. So it's the end of the school year almost. It is. All you teachers out there, principals, parents, you we know that you are very psyched. You're, you're, the, the pace of life is going to change. Mm. I'm looking forward to it. Are you guys? Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. I love the yeah. summer. Yeah. yeah. Any vacation? Just in general, I love the summer. I do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 This is a May, May. Let's, let's start with this. Yeah. What is the, Worst month of the school year for an educator? February. Yeah, it's like March, February. Really? You're going to say May? I was going to say May. Because it's right before June? Yeah. I love this I, time of the year. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I like May. Just because the weather. The weather's yeah. good. I mean, as long as the weather's fine. Yeah. The February, March doldrums. Yeah, the darkness always the gets darkness. you. Yep. March, you're like, oh, we're turning the corner. Yeah. And then you don't. You're turning the corner and you walk outside and it's still freezing. <laughs> and then it snows. <laughs> and and it's, like, wind- it's March. It's windy and brutal. And spring- Why do I live here? Spring break is still like six weeks away. Yeah. 
May, May has always been tough as a as a school leader. So many nights out, you know, Mr. Krabs. Yeah, that's yeah, true. A lot of end yeah. of year events. Well, yeah, there's like this crescendo at the end that just it's like a sprint and yeah. it can get pretty tiring. Yeah, yeah, but it's good. It's happy. It is. Yeah, it's a happy time. It's a joyous, busy time. Joyous. All right. Are you ready to get into our first segment? Yes. Um, I totally lost it. There it is. Uh, so. The biggest education news story you've never heard of, heard of by Natalie Wexler, which essentially takes us back to the debate about content knowledge and how important it is versus thinking skills, quote unquote thinking skills. And I'm speaking very loosely here to describe these yeah. these terms, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but certainly in the last decade in the Common Core era. There was an emphasis on things like at the elementary level, uh, focusing on kids making inferences and the middle school level, close reading. Um, So how kids unpack text with those thinking processes in the brain. And uh, this article talks about how uh, students from disadvantaged backgrounds, one of the biggest things that a couple of the biggest things they lack are vocabulary and background knowledge, and those are actually more important than those thinking skills if they're going to be able to absorb heavy-duty content by the time they get to high school. Because um, when you think if you get to high school and you're taking those AP courses, you really have to have the background knowledge to be able to, to survive in those courses, and you have to be able to handle really dense, complicated, complex text. I always think about it as like immediately shelving information into different categories in your brain. brain. Yep, yeah. yep. So uh, this this piece basically points out that in most elementary schools, there continues to be a real emphasis on explicit teaching of thinking skills. Right. Teachers spend a lot of time explicitly teaching how you make inferences, modeling those things for kids, um, and then the the rigorousness of the text that the kids are in is is not very rigorous, not very hard, um, and so then later on they can't they can't handle the kinds of text that they're going to need to to be successful in school or to you know be competitive to get into college. So, what is it, fellas? Is it content knowledge? Is content king? Or are, are thinking skills still the way to go? Or can we be mealy-mouthed and talk about combining the two? Uh, well, how, just, how was that for a setup? That was, that was good. I'd like to applaud you. Uh, to not be mealy-mouthed and just to go on one side or the other, I was actually thinking recently, in, you know, maybe it was a, because politics, elections, etc., and thinking about, and we've had, you and I, Robbie, have had this conversation off the air about social studies yeah. and what exactly social studies is. And so I was thinking about civics. Socialist. <laughs> All right, anyway. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, but I was thinking about uh, sort of like civics is the example um, for this in terms of content versus skills. And civics in and of itself is, is really nothing but content. You know, how does the government work? What are the branches of government? How old do you have to be president? Um, all that sort of stuff. NSL, national, state, and local government. Right. And... Um, you know, I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if we do have a distinct lack of emphasis generally on content mm-hmm. and, and specific things to know. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things I think that are valuable to know. Mm-hmm. Now, being a robot and, you know, I know the argument is, well, if you can look it up on Google, then why bother teaching it? And I mean, to a certain degree, I think that's true. But, you know, the ability to quickly process and make connections and know things without having to look something up, there's an inherent value in that. So I, in, this piece in particular did strike a chord with me about, yeah, let's teach specific stuff. But, but, but something knowledge. like civics doesn't have to be content-focused only. If you're looking at what age can you vote, you could look at, um, you could have kids go, basically create an argumentative essay about or delve into the arguments for lowering the age to 16, mm-hmm. which requires more skill-based instruction in terms of creating an argument, justifying your argument, um, and doing your own research on that kind of stuff. So I think there, I, I don't, my, my feeling on it is like, it doesn't, there's always this feeling like it's got to be one or the other, but you can't just solely focus on skills because that's boring. And just focusing on content, then I think that's kind of boring too, because it's just, you're not diving in. You're not. You're not 
close reading primary sources. You're not delving delving into the arguments behind the Federalist Papers. You're not going deeper into the content. You're just getting the content. So there has to be a, a mixture of both. And I, and I also think there's a lot of misconceptions about skills-based instruction anyway from when the Common Core was put into place. People thought it was only skills-based instruction. That's, that's totally false. If you've actually read the Common Core standards, it doesn't even it it doesn't own it doesn't need, nowhere does it tell you that you need to focus only on skills. But there's a, a common misconception that that Common Core was just that we're getting rid of content. We're only focusing on skills, and that's completely false. And the the, the and tips they give for journalists, I think, here are sound because journalists are focusing on the surface level, and they're they're not reporting directly on what they actually see in classes, and they're and they're coming in and out really quick. And um, I don't think they're doing the, the education the world uh, a service. And, and so they do talk about, and Sonia Santelises is a chief executive officer for the Baltimore public schools. And um, it kind of, the article is through her in a sense. Um, she also works with an organization called Chiefs for Change, head of school organizations mm-hmm. that are kind of promoting more knowledge. And she says it doesn't take the place of other things, knowledge that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but to say it's a side dish and to say content doesn't matter is professional malpractice. So let me ask you just in you know, anecdotal generalization in going into schools and going into classrooms, do you see, would you characterize it as a, is a deficit is a lack of emphasis on content? Um, I don't think so. I think it's more of like, I think the problem that I see is that they're the focus on too much content and rather than like uh, trying to squeeze in thousands of years of history into one semester or one year forces you to go a mile wide and an an inch deep and it and it totally takes away from the excitement that history can provoke in kids so instead of spending an, an exorbitant amount of time and letting kids dive deeper into the various civil rights movement not just african-american civil rights but gay rights and and women's rights and all these other movements that came to place oh well we only have to spend we can only spend three days on it so you know, then we have to go into the Vietnam War. Um, and, it, I, and, and I just feel like it, it prevents teachers and students from diving deeper and having a and gaining a true interest in the in the history. But in a way, though, you're advocating for content, you're advocating for less content, but more depth. Yeah. So really, you're saying content is really important. You just don't want to include too much. Right. Because if you have if you're but if you have the, the even though it's less content, there's less, I think you have more of a chance of for teachers to focus and build kids' capacity and in, in, um, focusing on the skills as well. Because if you're focusing on less content, it's gonna, it's it's not going to seem like a whirlwind to kids about how much they're trying to digest on a single subject over a period of time. And you're focusing on the skills so that if they do take a class in the Vietnam War, even though they didn't study it in school, they're going to have the skills to... to you know, read at a at an AP level course when they get there about the Vietnam War. Yeah, I mean, I'm I hear you. I just I'm I'm torn on this topic. I, I you guys ever heard of Edie Hirsch? Edie mm. Hirsch. Yeah, process versus content. He was the king of, on the content side at one time, and was was kind of a he was an antihero because he espoused content unapologetically in the late '80s, early '90s, um, and he, he was a professor at the University of Virginia. And I mean, I, I did not, I mean, he, he did push for national standards. He was an early, early proponent of national, mm-hmm. national content standards for schools. But I, you know, I spent a fair amount of time in my career in elementary classrooms. I taught in an elementary classroom. And when I was a principal, I do remember times where I would go into classrooms and teachers were doing book walks with kids on the carpet around the easel. This is before the days of smart boards. And the amount of explicit instruction on text features and modeling, and I, at, at a point, I'd be like, okay, let the kids read. Right. All right? Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was... Do you see it, the bold words here? Yeah. <laughs> Do you yeah. see the italics? Exactly. Let's go to the glossary. Um, and the kids were not struggling with with really rigorous text. And so I think that's part of the point here, is that there's... You know, I think in education, sometimes we swing, we swing one way or the other. I, I've always been, um, I mean, one of the things that came out of E.D. Hirsch's work was the, was the uh, standards of learning in Virginia, the SOLs. Mm-hmm. And in the 1990s, Maryland had the MISPAP, 
the Maryland School Performance Assessment Program, and Virginia had the SOLs. And the SOLs were very content heavy. Hmm. I mean, they included geography, they included dates, they included events. And the MISPAP was all about process, all about how kids thought. Right. Um, so it was kind of the, in standardized testing, it was the two extremes. And that's, and that's what I was going to ask you was, is our resident historian yes and token oh, old guy yeah i know well, that's, <laughs> if you weren't going to say old guy i, I knew that's what you were going to yeah, yeah, right, you know. yeah, whatever uh, uh experienced hands yes. in other terms of the like i mean have you seen um have you seen a, a dramatic and or obvious change away from content that's really discernible not only on the standardized test level but also in the day-to-day classroom level that has really impacted how we teach kids because yeah there's this idea of like oh we should change you know content or thinking skills and that's fine in theory but if it doesn't really impact the classroom then it's for me at least it's a little bit of you know, who cares right but um you have seen that. i i do think that you know part of the process craze was um associated with standardized testing in other words um you know, those things went together, at least in my experience. Uh, so standardized testing became a lot less about discrete knowledge and more about kind of, you know, how you, how you think. Um, and so it wasn't so much about the text itself when you were reading it on a standardized test. It was, it was what you could, what, what, what process or thinking skills you could apply to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, content has become probably less important over the years. I think at the, at the high school level, the secondary level, it still is important. And there's probably a disconnect between elementary instruction and secondary instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reality is, is that school systems don't, they don't have anything to do with college board and AP courses. Those are developed completely outside of what school systems do in their curriculum. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, Again, I think it's probably a balance of both. I think both are important. I think it's one of those things that's become politicized also. It's like whole language versus phonics. Sure. Yeah. I um, definitely thought of that too. Yeah. So it's it's, you know, your Edie Hirsch was considered a conservative thinker about education, just like Diane Ravitch was at one time. I mean, her book Left Back, her big first piece, was really again was right along the lines of Edie Hirsch, which yeah. was we're teaching kids the wrong thing. Yeah. Um so I wouldn't be surprised at all. I think, um, you know, they're they're. Uh, I, I think we owe it to kids of all backgrounds to make sure that that we we give them rigorous content. Um, I think it could be the slippery slope of low expectations if you don't do that, mm-hmm. um, because in this article, right, it says that kids come to school. There are differences with the amount of content knowledge and background knowledge they have, and some will get it. In school, and yes. some won't get it right. in school. So this article is saying we got to give it to them in school. Right. Because if they don't get it here, they're right. not getting it anywhere else. Right. Now, let me ask you a corollary question on that. So one of the things I've noticed with standardized testing, you were kind of bringing up some points about that. So it seems like nowadays every standardized test is essentially a reading test. Mm-hmm. They are. You're exactly right. And it didn't used to be that way. No. I, I, there used to be discrete content knowledge that was tested. Uh, a long time ago. Okay. I mean, in my ever since like the 90s, early nineties, yeah, or, early nineties. It started to really change in the nineties. Um, as I mentioned, the the standardized towards te- just the ability to dissect any text, correct. that you get, regardless of what you know, correct. Okay, yeah, and and not just also reading skills, but but also science skills. Um, you know how how kids on the MSPAP would 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 use thinking skills that were not really science content knowledge. Um, so it really swung pretty heavily in that direction. People thought when No Child Left Behind was passed that there would be more of an emphasis on content. I'm not sure there has been. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you've seen it in your time. Um, you know, I... I I mean, in some in like math, I would say, yeah, content is still pretty king. It is king. Yeah. But you and I both know that what is one of the major accusations about middle schools? That they're too easy. Yeah. And what, where is that easiness coming from? Is it, it's, I would argue that probably it's because middle schools are not as, are not as, um, not as focused on content as maybe they should be. Um, I could, but I could be, I could be wrong I mean, about that. No, I could, yeah. 
I mean, Project uh, Success, which we've talked about endlessly on the show, was not was not really about content. It was more about community and culture. Sure. Um, and then building the other stuff in correct. to be able to access it. Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, well, our the, the third member of the show. Just, I, think, I think we're ready for our interview. Are we ready yeah, for, for, for Mr. Rothstein? Yes. All right. Um, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back. We're excited to have uh, Richard Rothstein on the show. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I get to do my first opening yes, ever do. for the podcast, and it's and 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 you should be honored because it's for author Richard Rothstein. I know. Well, everybody, we are so excited to have uh, Mr. Richard Rothstein on the show tonight. Uh, we have a lot of awesome questions for him tonight. Um, Richard Rothstein is a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute and a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Richard Rothstein is also the author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. We welcome him. We are so excited to have him. Richard, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, so, unfortunately, your weather is not as nice as it is over by us, but um, hopefully we can we can brighten your day by some of the, the, the questions that we have for you and exciting time that we're going to spend with you tonight. Um, the first question we have, uh, for folks who don't know about de jure segregation. Uh, tell us about the role de jure segregation has played in how, or how it has impacted schools generally. How it's impacted schools? Yeah. Well, um, that's a complicated question, but uh, let me begin by saying that we had an education policy uh, in this country in the 1990s and 2000, and it lingers on today, that claimed that the only reason we had an achievement gap between black and white children was because teachers in schools uh, had low expectations for them. And if only we held those teachers in schools accountable uh, for the children's test scores and tested them more, the achievement gap would disappear. And as you know, that uh, idea, that theory was uh, embodied in law in the No Child Left Behind Act. It was a bipartisan law uh, adopted in 2001. Well, that theory was nonsense because the the primary reason that we have an achievement gap between black and white children in school is because the social and economic disadvantages that uh, children from low-income minority neighborhoods come to school with impedes their learning. If a child has asthma and is up at night wheezing from that, and black children in urban areas have asthma at four times the rate of white children, and they come to school drowsy and and sleepless, uh, the high expectations and more testing is not going to make them wide awake. Yeah. And there are so many of these uh, conditions that uh, children from uh, low-income neighborhoods have. Uh, Asthma, lead poisoning, homelessness, uh, economic insecurity, uh, stress from uh, living in a violent neighborhood or seeing police violence. Yeah. So all of these uh, things contribute to the achievement gap. And then when you concentrate children with these disadvantages and single schools, closing the achievement gap becomes impossible. Well, schools are segregated today more than they have been at any time in the last 45 years, and it's getting more segregated over time. And the reason that they're segregated is the neighborhoods they're located in are segregated. Yeah. The Supreme Court has prohibited explicit school desegregation plans because the neighborhoods are, are segregated, it calls de facto, just by accident, by right. private prejudice, by oh, private actors in the, in the economy, like real estate agents and banks discriminating, or people liking to live with each other of the same race, or maybe income differences. All of these individual personal decisions, they call it de facto segregation. And the Supreme Court has said that if you have de facto segregation, you're not permitted to do anything explicit about it. Well, the purpose of my book, The Color of Law, is to demonstrate that that's an other myth. There's no basis in reality to it whatsoever. The residential segregation that we have in every metropolitan area in this country was created by explicit, racially explicit federal, state, and local policy. Of course, it built upon uh, private prejudice, but the Constitution doesn't permit the government to build upon private prejudice. It requires the government to resist it. Right. And we call that 
system where the government embraces private prejudice and enforces uh, violations of civil rights, uh, explicit policies that assign where people may live based on their race. We call that the jury segregation. And unless we abolish the myth that the reason that we have segregation is by accident, uh, by accident, uh, because of uh, private prejudice and private actions in the economy, that de facto segregation myth. And understand that racial segregation of neighborhoods and therefore of schools is as unconstitutional as much a civil rights violation because it was created by government as much as the segregation of lunch counters or buses or water fountains or schools or colleges and universities yeah. that we addressed in the 20th century. Unless we understand that, we're not going to be able to address it. So Richard, I don't, this is Robbie. I don't claim to be a, an expert on this topic, but help me out here. If there, there was um, in response to, to Brown in the, 60s and 70s and 80s there the school systems did make efforts across the country to actively desegregate right so did is it safe to say that it's at some point because school systems could say in courts that they were not actively segregating anymore than the the political will to continue to try to desegregate schools has disappeared over the last, you say, 40 years? Does is, is that sound reasonable? Well, yes, it's reasonable. And the position the schools took was reasonable. The schools weren't trying to segregate. The schools were segregated because the neighborhoods in which they were located were segregated. And in order to desegregate schools, we've got to address the underlying cause. There's very little that schools can do. We can engage in busing again. Right. But there's very little that schools can do to desegregate so long as they're located in segregated neighborhoods. Uh, personally, uh, I support the idea of neighborhood schools. All children should go to neighborhood schools and they should be in integrated neighborhoods where they have opportunities to in, uh, interact with children of other races where they are mixed income. Um, that's the way to desegregate schools. It's not by keeping segregated neighborhoods and trying to bus children long distances uh, to schools and opposite race neighborhoods. Right. I remember at one time, though, Richard, that that the term neighborhood schools was really just kind of a a proxy for for Caucasian parents that wanted to resist desegregation. Do you do you remember those times? And that isn't that correct? Well, of course I remember that, that they wanted to resist busing, ch- taking children out of their neighborhoods in order to go to distant schools. You know the whole basis of Brown versus Board of Education, the uh, Supreme Court decision that abolished legal segregation in school, was to permit children to go to their neighborhood schools. Linda Brown, the young woman, uh, the child in, in Topeka, Kansas, who was, whose father was the lead plaintiff um, in that case, lived in an integrated neighborhood. We had lots of integrated neighborhoods in the mid-20th century. We no longer have them today. Yeah. Uh, she wanted to go to her neighborhood school. Uh, she was forced to go to a, a school far from her neighborhood in order to keep her in a segregated school. Well, we no longer have neighborhood schools like that. And uh, so um, because we no longer have neighborhood schools and integrated neighborhoods because there are very, very few integrated neighborhoods left. Yeah. So we need to address the underlying cause, which is neighborhood segregation. Housing policy is education policy. Mm-hmm. We cannot solve these problems of schools so long as we maintain segregated neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of leads into my follow-up question um, in terms of proactive policies um, that maybe you promote or think that we should do. And I think that line that housing policy is education policy is is a pretty powerful and sound one. So what should we be doing um, to create integrated neighborhoods and thereby integrated schools? Well, there are many, many policies we should follow. I can go through a few of them, but the important thing to keep in mind is that we don't have the political will yet mm-hmm. to implement any of these policies. So policymakers know know what we should do. It's no secret. Yeah. What we need is a new civil rights movement that's going to demand that we do it. So, for example, um, African-American families in the mid-20th century were excluded by explicit federal policy from participating in the suburbanization of the country. Mm -hmm. The Housing Administration uh, subsidized white families only 
to move to single-family homes in all white suburbs. This was an explicit federal policy. Uh, the white families who moved to these were returning war veterans, working-class families mm-hmm. uh, who took advantage of these federal programs. The homes that they moved to with federal subsidy uh, gained in value over the next couple of generations, appreciated that white families gained equity. Those homes are no longer affordable to working-class families of either race. Uh, we ought to be subsidizing African-Americans uh, to purchase homes that otherwise are unaffordable to them at prices comparable to what they would have paid uh, if they had been permitted to do to buy them at the point when whites were being subsidized to buy them. So that's one policy we could follow. Uh, we should be abolishing exclusionary zoning rules in, in suburbs that prohibit the construction of townhouses or um, even single-family homes on small lot sizes or multiple unit dwellings uh, that maintain those the prohibitions those zoning laws maintain segregation we should prohibit those zoning laws consider them unconstitutional because they perpetuate an unconstitutionally created situation yeah the low end uh, we have programs that subsidize the housing for low-income families uh, one that uh, many people are familiar with the section 8 voucher program Another is a a tax credit that's given to developers run by the Federal Treasury Department called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. Both of those programs perpetuate and reinforce segregation today because affordable housing for low-income families is placed primarily in existing low-income segregated neighborhoods. The Treasury Department actually places a priority on the use of its tax credits in low-income neighborhoods, reinforcing their segregation. It would be very easy to modify that program to require that the priority be placed in creating housing for low and moderate income families in neighborhoods that presently exclude them. We should be modifying the Section 8 voucher program, which also today perpetuates segregation because the way in which that program is designed ensures that most Section 8 voucher holders are going to have to use them in low-income segregated neighborhoods. Landlords won't accept them in high opportunity places that program should be modified as well we should prohibit landlords from discriminating against section 8 voucher holders they're not prohibited from doing so now a landlord can under the law refuse to accept a section 8 voucher holder uh, simply because they have a section 8 voucher yeah and the result is that in middle class neighborhoods landlords typically refuse to rent to uh, families with section 8 vouchers so the only place they can be used is in already low-income segregated neighborhoods reinforcing their segregation and I, so there are many many policies that we could follow and and, and and as we know i mean like as you just referred to there there's not a political will to do that at, maybe at the federal or even state level but one of the things that i found that really stuck out to me in in your book and uh, in the chapter about like looking at fixes was looking at curriculum and and maybe the housing policy and all those other policies w- would not come to bear or will not come to bear anytime soon but there's probably a lot of things that maybe local school systems can do or policymakers, education policymakers, that that has to do with one of the things you quoted in the book. If young people are not taught, taught an accurate account of how we came to be segregated, their generation will have little chance of doing a better job of desegregating than the previous ones. Mm-hmm. And we actually just talked about the, you know, the, the difference between content and skills in classrooms. And, and you referenced the the history book, The Americans' Reconstruction to the or Reconstruction to the 21st Century. Can you talk to or speak to a little bit about what maybe school, maybe local school systems could do or, or boards of education or, or education policymakers that might be a little more um, maybe short-term uh, fixes? Absolutely. Uh, I'm involved with a number of people that are trying to stimulate civil rights activity around the issue of segregation. And one of the things we've done is we've created curriculum units Uh, that can be used in schools, high school curricula in particular, uh, to teach an accurate history of residential segregation. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, I'll give you my email address. And any teachers who are interested in getting copies of this curriculum can um, uh, send me a note, and um, I'll make sure to pass it on to the developers. It'll be ready this summer for teachers who are planning uh, um, their courses for uh, the coming school year. My email address is R-I-R-O-T-H at E-P-I, that's Edward Peter Ingrid for the Economic Policy Institute, dot O-R-G. That's R-I-R-O-T-H 
at epi.org. And if you, uh, your listeners are teachers who are interested in, in pressing their schools or to adopt these curriculum or want to use it themselves in their own classrooms. And, um, and I have a friend who actually did just, I have a friend who actually did just that. Um, he had, he had his students look at local schools and he had them look at the, um, the, the racial makeup of, of the different school district boundaries and had his students in AP U.S. history um, dive into that and determine the extent to which there is segregation in, in his school district, which I found to be, uh, the kids found to be incredibly not only engaging, but I think they were astounded to see what was in front of them. Right. So one last uh, question for you, Richard, and um, it's going to be the broadest of them all. So in just thinking kind of how we got here um, and looking at some of the causes, I mean, does it come down to as simple of a, a haves versus have-nots and a me versus you sort of mentality and, a, you know, a, a racial just the racial component that is, racism right yeah that's in there you know is it is it just that simple well it's not haves and have nots because the have nots have not primarily because of government policy right it was the policy that created the have nots not the, the have nots created the policy <laughs> and so if um, if we had policies to redress this situation we would be able to desegregate schools um, why did the federal government and state and local governments follow these policies? Well, um, they were – the Democratic Party, let me say, in the 20th century was a segregationist party. It wasn't mm-hmm. just the South. Yep. Uh, one of the stories I often tell, and if I can take a moment to tell this. Sure, go ahead. You know, the, the federal civil service was integrated in the early 20th century. It was an integrated federal civil service. And in 1912, when Woodrow Wilson was elected president, Wilson decided that he was a Southerner, even though he had moved to New Jersey prior to um, uh, becoming a, a president. Um, he decided to segregate the federal civil service, and uh, curtains were placed in federal office buildings. Uh, African Americans were fired if they supervised whites because that was no longer permitted. Um, separate washing facilities were placed in basements for African Americans to use. But one of the biggest federal departments in 1913, when this program was implemented was the Navy Department. The Assistant Secretary of the Navy at that time was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who implemented the program of segregation of mm. uh, federal um, office offices in the Navy Department. Wow. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that Roosevelt's uh, had this idea himself or that he, I don't know if he even liked it, but he certainly went along with it. It was part of the assumptions of the Democratic Party in which he thrived, in which he matured. And when he became president, um, race issues were not a priority concern for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was willing to sacrifice them um, in favor of any more um, aggressive policy on economics or, or fighting the war. It wasn't just a compromise with Southerners. This was the assumption of his administration, Northerners and Southerners alike. Yeah, he, cert- he certainly didn't care as much as his wife did. Well, that's right. This, yeah. was, a, this was not a, a program of segregation without controversy. His mm-hmm. wife was the leading opponent <laughs> of his policies of segregation. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, this is this is um, so. Uh, we're we're for, as as educators, it's it's challenging for us. Um, one of the things that I want to I want to get your thoughts on right before we we say goodbye, um, and this has been great. Is if if you want to create a, a a ruckus in a in a public school system, you mention um, two words: boundary study. <laughs> and um, you know, school systems are still trying to find ways to to to. It sounds like, based on what you're saying, try to address a problem that they didn't necessarily create. Um, do you do you think that there are any more effective strategies that school systems can use to try to? integrate or desegregate um, that, that haven't been used aside from busing? Well, um, magnet programs. There are, yeah. Magnet schools, busing. um, uh, But as I said, again, and I know it's uh, not easy to get your head around this, but uh, housing policy is education policy. Right. And uh, if we want to desegregate schools, there's very little we can do unless we address the segregation of housing. Yep. So many 
African-American, disadvantaged African-American children live so far mm-hmm. from affluent white communities and yep. vice versa that no matter how much we fiddle around with attendance boundary zones and how much we fiddle around, of course, we don't do it anymore with busing or with magnet schools, we're not going to do very much. We should do those things, but we're not going to do very much to desegregate schools unless we confront the, the fact that it's housing segregation that creates the segregation of schools. Oh, geez. All right. Well, the book is incredible. It's The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by our guest, Richard Rothstein. Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, give us that email address one more time in any other way that our listeners can contact you. Sure. Well, email is the best way. It's R-I-R-O-T-H at E-P-I dot O-R-G. Hmm. And I look forward to hearing from them. All right. All right, Richard. Thanks. We'll we'll catch up with you soon. We appreciate you coming on Ed's Not Dead. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Thanks again to Richard Rothstein. That was an incredible interview. It was. It was. I, th- I think I said off the air that I was stretched to the limits of my <laughs> IQ when, when he was when he was talking about housing policy. Yeah. yeah. Was Something- that on the air or off the air? That was on the air. Was it on yeah, the I air? Think, no, it was off the air. Well, okay. I think it was off the air. All right. Anyway, that the, the, the well now it's on the air. <laughs> the, ho- the housing policy is education policy is is powerful and something that I I mean I kind of kind of know that but the way he his argument was okay that's true and you know and again that line in particular I think is really going to stick with me and you know I've had conversations about some of the stuff where, or where you, you think something seems unfair or right. unequal or off. Right. But you don't know why. You don't have the history. You don't have right. the facts. You don't have the information. But some of the housing decisions, the de facto and de jure segrega- segregation, segregation. Yeah. you know, advocated by the federal government. Um, and directed by that. Directed, yeah. is, is it safe? Is it safe to say the three of us grew up in undiverse neighborhoods? Incredibly undiverse. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so we've we've experienced it and 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 without even knowing we were experienced well I don't, maybe we knew it but and at um, the time i didn't know it no i don't think in, at I, some point i, I don't think out. i yeah i don't think i my I, the, where i grew up it wasn't like i there was no diversity anywhere any like even marginally close but what about in a small town was there the other side of the tracks did you have the train the proverbial train running through town i mean it was it was it was it was maybe economically diverse but not not racially i mean so you had white working class or white poor yep okay yeah yeah and i i feel like um you know we talked about this earlier but the the woes the social woes of, of our country are often put on the shoulders of school leaders and teachers and, and administrators and policymakers when it's not just our responsibility, it's the responsibility of, of something as big and and uh, large a ship as federal housing policy. Mm-hmm. Something that you would you wouldn't inherently think would would change the opportunity gaps that kids have in schools, but it really does oh, have an impact. Right. And it was and you know, as he pointed out, it was it was to steal the key line from Brown, deliberate. It was deliberately racist and yeah, and and it had a purpose. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, the only thing that I didn't ask him that I just I I, I never want to let the private sector off the hook so easily. Yeah. Yeah. And he and he he talked a lot about um, the way government has has created segregation um, in in housing policies, but I didn't, you know, I, he, well, he mentioned a little bit about mortgages and lending and, but certainly the private sector's had a role. They in, certainly in have. That, and, yeah. and in his book, it's, it only, and he notes that in the book where it's like, we can, I can talk all, all day long about the ways in which real estate companies and banks legitimately or not legitimately, but actually segregated and, and, and made policies for their own companies to not provide services to people of color. But his book was just really just focusing on the un, the un talked the non talked about area of government policy right. regulations right. and things that, right. well, that policymakers what, and bureaucrats did yeah. to to block African Americans specifically from from yeah. neighborhoods and well that's what he's an expert on yeah yeah I, I was I, impressed with your Eleanor Roosevelt knowledge oh you were yeah, yeah. well my dad is ninety yeah. and and my dad was. 
you know, I guess he was a big FDR fan. He grew up during the Depression. Yeah. And so... What um, year was he? So, I mean, 28. Okay. 28. Yeah. I mean, he was, was, he was, he was a little kid in the yeah. height of the Depression. I mean, he yeah. remembers he remembers food rationing and all those kinds wow. of things. Yeah. So... Um, and he was a big Eleanor Roosevelt fan. I mean, he she was popular well into the fifties, right? When did she When did she die? I don't know that. Um, I, I don't know that. I know that. <laughs> you know, as far as government is concerned, and as far as being a first lady, she was way ahead of her time. Yeah. Um, you know, she was she was obviously more qualified than her husband. Nineteen sixty-two. Yeah, really, she yep. lived that long. Mm-hmm. All right. So she yeah. died. She died during the Kennedy administration. Yeah. Um, I, the only thing that I, last thing I'll say is that did, did either or ask, didn't either of you have that little twinge of, I mean, you can't let schools off the hook altogether. I mean, I just felt like, um, I mean, he did say at one point that the closing the achievement gap was impossible. He used the word impossible. Um, and I've never operated. Didn't even, in that. I, maybe I just, I'll go back and listen. I thought he backed away from that a little after he said impossible, but yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't, because education and schools have certainly played a huge role in perpetuating uh, organizational structures. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, schools are typically a reflection of society. So so even, even post-Brown, up until this day, um, schools have a tremendous amount of work to do on yeah. this. Right? Yeah. And I don't want to do. let schools off the hook, and I don't want to say impossible, but... I mean, do we have a lot of heavily segregated schools that, you know, have have done well and broken the mold? You know, what do we have more of? Schools that have broken the mold or schools that have fallen victim to the whatever the mold or, you know, whatever analogy you want to use? Yeah. I mean, I think schools are, I think schools are struggling with it. They're trying to, they're trying to, I mean, schools, schools have taken on the achievement gap, um, but I think to his point, you know, he talks a lot about opportunity and I think maybe schools are switching their focus towards opportunity, institutional barriers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, that's what all these policies he's talking about. They created barriers. They blocked people yeah. from, from access and opportunity. Right. Accessing the upward levers of mobility. Right. Correct. And, right. sc- and yeah. schools have done the same thing from yeah. the courses that you can take to the teachers that you can have, mm-hmm. the programs you can access. Um, all right. Well, thanks again to Richard Rothstein. He was a tremendous guest. Yeah. Um, all right. So when our audience hears this, it is May. <laughs> School's almost over. It is. I it can't is. wait. Uh, it's almost Memorial Day. I know. It's almost uh, Memorial Day. See, when this comes out, it'll be a week from today. All right. So any, right. any, any plans Memorial Day? I'm flying to Asheville. Whoa. Whoa. I'm taking my first personal day in three years. <laughs> Are you really? Okay. Seriously. All right, I'm not. I'm not going to comment. on <laughs> Why? That. I'm not going to say. Yeah, me words. too. Yeah. I've not taken any ever. What? Woo! I've never <laughs> taken a day off. In what do you mean? What are you doing in Nashville? Are My you, younger you, brother moved there. Oh, I forgot. He, you told he, me he picked up and moved. Yeah, yeah. Nice. got a job with GE. Do you know Asheville is on my list of places to move? Really? That I've never been to. Well, <laughs> really, I'll, I'll, I'll report there? back. I've never I'll been report there. back. Yeah. I went to when I was ten. I went to National Wildlife Camp. <laughs> no. Yes. For two weeks. How many, for how for many 14 days, uh, I held a lot of snakes, and I caught my first lizard. Oh. I was obsessed with catching a lizard, because you, you can't find lizards in Maryland very readily, yeah. especially now with all the development. Um, but anyway. Ranger it, Rick? Was it Ranger Rick? It was Rick? Ranger Rick. <laughs> it was. The Ranger Rick. Yeah. The, the brochure came from, my mom saw it, and Ranger yeah. Rick. I was a Ranger Rick. My grandmother got me Ranger Rick. It's a subscription. I had it for years. Casey, did, did you know about Robbie's love of reptiles? I did. You did? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Maybe our audience doesn't know. I, I, wanted, yeah. to, I wanted to be a herpetologist yeah. when I you was have, <laughs> we, Years ago, we were walking somewhere, right. and there was like a little garden snake. Yeah. I mean, it was like a pencil. Okay. But first, I was, first I was of like, all, ah! First of all, he did the the, he get the the dead giveaway. He called it a garden snake. <laughs> oh, no. Versus a garter snake. Garter snake. G-A-R-T-E-R. I thought it was gartner. Oh, it's a garden snake. It's a gartner snake. It's a kindergartner snake. <laughs> anyway. So, so Robbie just picks it up, and he's just like, it's, you know, totally fascinating. I'm just like... What is wrong with you? Who is this person? Yeah, that was one of the highlights of my classroom when I was a teacher. Is all the reptiles I had. But anyway, so I uh, National Wildlife Camp was in Hendersonville, which is right outside Asheville, right at the base of the Smokies. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It, Hendersonville and Asheville are awesome places. Yeah. You're gonna love it. I'm excited. Lots of lot lots of, of great art galleries there. Yep. It's a, it's a it's a pretty cool place. Yeah, I'm excited. Good fly fishing. Bre- a lot of breweries. I know. Well, you're a millennial. You know, got to <laughs> check out all the hipster breweries. All right, what are you doing? Are you in parenting purgatory during Memorial Day weekend? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just called parenting. Uh, we, uh, actually, Pearl's turning one. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Pearl on the 27th. So actually, on Memorial Day, big Pearl. Yes. Well, she's miniature human being but yeah miniature it's beautiful miniature human beautiful being. miniature um so, so yeah, we're having some people over i guess you could call it a party one whatever you want but it's mostly just for the adults and nice we're Fun. getting a very um very fancy cheese plate okay <laughs> yeah uh, you guys are going all out yeah yeah big time yeah spending some money on a cheese plate because we went to this party and it was an eight foot long cheese spread cheese is so good <laughs> and, and i just sat there for wow. like 45 minutes and, you know, you kind of pretend like you're not just sitting there totally bogarting <laughs> yeah. all the cheese. Yeah. Yeah. But you really are. And so we're getting a much, much smaller version. There's nothing that. better than sharp cheddar cheese. <sighs> and it makes you so fat. Do you like, do, <laughs> I, I love it. Do you like blue cheese? Oh, what do you mean? I'm, I'm the just making king sure. of blue cheese. Because the only thing better than a nice sharp cheddar yeah, it's, it's, is it's, a nice blue. I agree. I'm with you. I love a nice stinky blue. I, I'm I hate blue cheese. Oh, oh so really? It's so good. Blue cheese is, is my favorite. My like wife it. bought me some really stinky blue cheese from the from the place where we're getting it from. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, it's so good. And then I, I really started to look at it. <gasps> and it's, disgu- like, it's, it's not a good idea. It's no, you don't want to look too closely. Pretty disgusting. But it smells really good and it tastes really good. It tastes amazing. And you? You know, it's it's the it's the the pool opens. I'll oh, be yes. I'll be standing on the deck for the first swim team practice. My 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 guy now. Is sat- your no, uh, your daughter's doing it? Yeah, doing no, it. but Johnny and okay. Nora. Yeah, so it's that's the tradition. That Saturday morning, you know, there's oh, no boy. no rest for the weary. You get up Saturday morning, and there you are on the pool deck watching the first practice in the summer summer. I'll starts. show up at the pool at about noon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, are you gonna come? On Saturday? Yeah. I, it didn't even cross my mind. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, the pool be open. Maybe. Okay. All right. Well, folks, thanks for joining us. Um, thanks again to Richard Rothstein for being our guest on Ed's Not Dead. Spread the word, everybody. Uh, we This will air. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Monday, <laughs> Monday the... Wait, no. 20th. 20th? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's, the audience knows my issues with, with our episodes <laughs> and how they all all the pieces fit together. They all, they all bleed together. <laughs> uh, please follow us at Ed's Not Dead PC. Check us out on Facebook. Check out the new and improved website at some point when Crable finishes it. And uh, tell your friends about the show. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon. Later. <laughs>